0: Promotional support for this episode of the Hinkley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Thank you for listening to the Hinkley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Tonight on the Hinckley Report. Following an intense primary election, the race for Salt Lake City's mayor is down to the final two. Although the 2020 election is more than a year away, candidates are lining up to be Utah's next governor. And politics did not take a summer break, as leaders tackled major issues facing the state. Good evening welcome to the new season and the 100th episode of the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Jennifer Napier-Pierce, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune, Jason Lee, reporter for the Deseret News and Max Roth, political reporter and anchor for Fox 13 News. So glad to have you all with us today on this 100th episode. A lot has happened over the summer. Good to be here, Jess. <laughs> a, a lot has happened. Let's get to it. First, the governor yesterday issued a letter calling the legislature in for special session on September 16th. Mm-hmm. Several items on the agenda, but I wanna to get to a couple of them because it turns out we're, start, we're starting up where we left off at the end of the summer. Medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. We're back to that discussion for the special session. Uh, Jason, let's start with you for just a moment. Uh, the the idea uh, f- from the last legislative session was creating these state-run pharmacies and dispensaries. What has happened since that legislation went through that they're trying to fix in the special session?
1: Well, we're hoping they're realizing that it's a federal issue, and to have the states involved in something that hasn't been totally re- re- uh, resolved nationally is probably not a smart idea. If you go into California or Arizona or Nevada, they they have outside entities running their, their dispensaries. They don't have state-run entities doing so. And to me, it seems as though they're trying to avoid this conflict. Hopefully, they're gonna to try to avoid this conf- conflict and rethink the way they were gonna do the dispensaries.
0: Yeah, so Max, this conflict is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, what was the problem that was emerging, uh, with, like attorneys- it's, it's the legality of, of selling
2: marijuana because uh, you make it legal in a state, still illegal federally, and uh, and attorneys, uh, county attorneys, uh, government attorneys have. Having an issue with the state actually being in the business of selling something that the federal government says is illegal.
0: Uh, so, so, so Jennifer, th- this is getting a little bit closer to the initiative itself. This is like one of those-
3: That's the great irony of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, when uh, voters approved Proposition 2, lawmakers pounced, yeah. and within days, they had changed the law. Now they are sort of backing off some of the, the so-called solutions to the, the problems that they saw in Prop impromptu. Um, so I, the latest proposal that I understand is that um, there were gonna be seven state-controlled dispensaries. Mm-hmm. Now there's proposal for 12. Prop two of course was at 40. And the idea is to make it accessible to those who need it. So um, we'll see how, how the legislature sort of maneuvers and if they sort of uh, continue to renegotiate. But uh, again, I think Prop 2 proponents look at this and scratch their heads and they say, well, why didn't you just allow Prop 2 to go into effect? And we'll fix the problems as, as they arise instead of trying to intervene. And now we're seeing a little bit of uh, back and forth.
0: Yeah. So, Max, what about this back and forth? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the people who ran this initiative, they were pretty upset with, like Jennifer just just mentioned. Are they feeling better about it now or were, were, is this a, a first special session of many tweaks that are going I- to I don't know if there's any "I told you so"
2: happening there. I haven't talked to, to them specifically about that, but I think that uh, yes, if if it does move in that direction, they will feel better. I think that um, the folks who were involved in crafting that felt like they had thought it through and they had a, a clear uh, a clear mandate from the voters, and so uh, so they felt like they were really undercut by the legislature. And so, if it turns out that uh, that their way of doing it is a little more right than the legislatures
0: in terms of the legalities, then. I'm sure they feel that way. Okay, Jason, before we leave it, because the last part was, uh, you know, as I'm looking at this issue, so there's a problem for the state doing it, but is there not a problem for these private dispensaries?
1: The problem will be a, a bit different in that, if, for instance, if you go to any of the states I just mentioned previously, you know, you have that separation, that arm's length that says, though we're allowing it in our state, we are not the ones uh, running the dispensaries. And particularly since you We all know that this is a growing issue around uh, states in this country because more and more states are uh, legalizing uh, marijuana. However, the federal government hasn't taken it up yet. And until that happens, the states should, as best they can, not involve themselves in the actual dispensing and or uh, any of the financial T- entanglements of marijuana. One of
2: my favorite uh, points of the summer politically, uh, that kind of shows how this debate has gone, the Richfield City Council was deciding whether to allow a marijuana grow operation within city limits, a person who lives there wanted it. So at their city council, they were deciding on that and they're also considering another residence issue on whether she could keep her pot-bellied pig, which was not an approved pet. So they're deciding on pot and pot-bellied pigs they approve the pot, but not the pot-bellied pig. Oh so uh, pig that, that says, well, you know, they're going to, they're taking it under advisement, they'll vote on the pigs next week, and maybe after two weeks of, of
0: marijuana, <laughs> they'll, they'll be a little, uh, a little mellower about the pig. Maybe the pigs need a better mm-hmm. lobbyist. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the one, one of the other items, Jennifer. Um, the census. 2020 is the big census. we had a lot of discussion about this. The legislature's interested, but they didn't give any money to it during the last legislative session. It looks like maybe now, We're gonna see some funding.
3: Well, I think the legislature is catching up with the prescient representative, Karen Kwan. She asked for money. She said, look, we need need some outreach funding so that we can make sure that everybody who lives in Utah is counted. Um, Legislature said, no, 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 no. Now they're coming up to, oh, we really need to take this very seriously. And I think it's a good move.
0: Yeah, it, it seems like there's a lot of things hinging on that number and the count. And so, so, Max, we talked about this last year a little bit mm-hmm. where you know we're probably not going to get another congressional seat, but what, what, what else will we miss if we don't have an accurate count in the state? Well, if you don't have an accurate count, then you miss
2: federal dollars. Uh, a lot of the, the, the apportionment of money in terms of even to schools and that sort of thing comes from, uh, comes from what you have in the census. Um, and, uh, and, and that is a big deal. And Utah is a tricky state uh, census-wise. There are there are far-flung people. There are areas uh, in the state where there are Native American reservations, where there aren't, uh, where the, some people don't even speak a written language. Uh, you know, so, so there are all kinds of things going on in Utah where you really want to pay attention to getting that that yeah, notice out. I would out. say
3: that there's economic consequences too. I mean, banks are looking at this information. Government agencies are looking at it. Uh, companies, as they start to expand and grow, um, a, a lot hinges on whether or not we have an accurate. Candidate. Out. And I do think, you know, as Utah has diversified, we definitely want to get a, a sense of uh, the demographic shifts that we're seeing and how we can accommodate um, new residents of Utah.
1: Because we, I think we know that we're growing, and uh, obviously we, we got over the three million mark, and now we're, we're uh, you know, inching toward uh, an, another milestone eventually uh, later on uh, in, in a few years. To know that our, our we have this economic development going on it's important to have an accurate count of the people where they are where we can uh, f- have further economic development because again right now all of it's kind of uh, it's in the concentrated populated areas there is probably going to be a push later on to move us further out and we need to know where those places are that will be Uh, most advantageous to have some of that development take place.
0: Okay, very good. Let's switch gears for just a moment, because I want to talk about the 2020 governor's race. It's interesting, we're talking about this crowded field, but we only have one candidate that's (laughs) really uh, all all the way announced. Max, let's start with you, because we know that Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox is all in and touring the state uh, city by city. Uh, uh, He said that was one of his goals, I'm going to visit every city in the state. Is is that a huge uh, advantage to him? Maybe you have some idea about why he's doing that? Yes, it is a huge advantage, but I think
2: bigger advantage I mean getting in early is a big advantage and uh, honestly he was he was running before he was running mm-hmm. I mean he has been and and with the assistance of Governor Herbert he has been uh, the most visible lieutenant governor in the in the state since I've been reporting here in in Utah he's he's been out in the public eye holding events he's very active and popular on social media and someone who uh, and someone who shows enough of a personality that he actually draws attention from people who aren't
0: interested in politics. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the governor's involvement because Jennifer, that's not something we see very often. The governor's even made a pretty big donation this last week. Yeah, we
3: reported he has given $50,000, which is interesting only in the fact that he served as lieutenant governor to another potential candidate, John Huntsman, who is um, suspected, reportedly uh, suspicious about Mm -hmm. running as a governor. And I I think uh, that's sort of an interesting optics. When, when we talk about Cox, though, it's sort of a d- double-edged sword to get out in front. On the, on the one hand, he's visiting all of these counties, he's really building up his rural cr- street cred, on the, and he had it before. On the other hand, I think people see, wow, it's a year and a half out, does the lieutenant governor do anything that he has all this time to campaign? So, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's hard for him to, to straddle. Uh, the money seems to be coming in. Um, other candidates are also raising funds, so it'll be pretty interesting to see where this shakes out. Well,
0: let's let's ta- catch one of those points for a moment because you're, you're right, so Governor Herbert uh, is all in on Spencer Cox, it seems, but he
1: has several other friends-
3: He certainly does. <laughs> that, that
1: are going to be running. So Jason- This is his <laughs> hand-picked guy, right? So this is a person, he- when you choose a lieutenant governor, generally speaking, I think you want to feel somebody who, if for some reason you couldn't do this job, they would do a good job in in, in your stead. If you've met Spencer Cox, he's a smart man. He uh, is very. Uh, he's pretty charismatic and he's easy to understand and talk to. And you know that he's paying attention. And I think that having had him uh, around a couple of years now, and and uh, Greg Bell before him, you know, this is Spencer's chance to become a known commodity, because all of the people we're gonna talk about uh, in a a moment here are people this state has known for a long time. And prior to him being the Lieutenant Governor, most people probably hadn't even heard of Spencer Cox. This is his chance to have the stage all by himself. And right now, if he does that, that gives him at least an equal footing when a person like John Huntsman Jr. decides, if he wants to run again, or Greg Hughes, or any of the other people who already have higher uh, name recognition. So,
0: so actually, we, I guess we better get to a couple of those yeah, yeah. names, right? So yeah, so Spencer's trying to build his, his name ID throughout the entire state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what happens to this race if John Huntsman Jr. jumps in, or Spencer Eccles, for example, or Greg Hughes? Uh, names that people do know. Well, uh, Spencer Eccles or or Greg Hughes would Greg r- would
2: really have to. I, I think they would still have to establish some sort of foothold. Something would have to happen to give them uh, a, a, a leg up. Because I, I just think that Spencer Cox. I actually think he is a pretty well known commodity. He's been very visible for a long time, and so I I don't think that uh, I I think he's the big, uh, you know, the big person in this race. John Huntsman Jr. is the one person who would come in and. and and have that name recognition over him,
1: well, I think. Well, speaking, do you think, though, that if uh, John Huntsman Jr. or Spencer Eccles or, or Greg Hughes or some of these other guys come in, they have more political clout in a lot of ways, so do you feel
2: like that might give them an edge? I think uh, I, honestly, I, when I think about John Huntsman Jr., I wonder what his constituency is at this point that Spencer Cox doesn't already, it hasn't already consolidated um, because they're they're in some ways very similar political animals. Mm-hmm. A little bit of the maverick, uh, crossing lines, Spencer Cox vocally um, uh, critical of the president, never has been supportive of, of President Trump, and, uh, and yet he still has conservative credit, he has rural cred. Um, I, John Huntsman Jr. comes in, and that used to be where he was, occupying that that middle ground, and I'm not sure what his territory is if he comes back in.
0: So, Jennifer, I think we need to hit this, not sure what territory that Max was just talking about, because there are some candidates, like a Thomas Wright, who has maybe uh, a place on that spectrum picked out. This could lead to one of those, those um, kind of scenarios where you have a plurality issue, where you know all these other candidates really just kind of eat up a certain part of the spectrum right there. Someone could win this thing with 30 yeah. Thirty-five oh, percent. That
3: seems to be the recipe when you have an open seat. You know, I mean, we, we've seen a lot of uh, candidates come out of the presidential woodwork. We've seen a lot in the Salt Lake City mayor's race. It's not a surprise that there would be a lot of people interested in being governor. I mean, I think the field does change substantially if John Huntsman Jr. gets in. Um, but there are a lot of people talking about it. I think Greg Hughes has raised half a million bucks already, and he's not even officially in the race. Amy Winder Newton has been Mm -hmm. pretty open about her candidacy. So, um, you know, I I, I think it'll be pretty interesting. um, But, Again, you know, when we start talking about the race, we're really talking about Republicans and mm-hmm. we're talking about the process and how many people Thank are you for going to, to this podcast go uh, straight to of the, the voters, Hitler how report. many are going like to bypass the convention, all of that stuff is in play. Issues, um, please leave us a review. 2020 is just going to be a bang up year, I tell you. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think the lane that's open is on the right. The lane that's open is gonna be yeah. to the right of Spencer Cox. Agreed. I don't Agreed. know if John Huntsman uh, is, I mean, John Huntsman would, would have a chance of challenging Cox in the middle. Uh, but, uh, but the other candidates, I think, would have to come in convention uh, and, uh, and, uh, and really establish their bona fides mm-hmm. as, a, as a conservative.
0: Yeah, let's talk about another race that's, that is happening right now. We know who the candidates are. Uh, Aaron Mendenhall, Luis Escamilla. So we have the race for Salt Lake City Mayor. All right, so um, hey Jennifer, just a little bit about how we got here, because this wasn't what many expected to see no, these two. No,
3: there were a, a lot of candidates. I think there were nine. Um, maybe eight uh, at, at the mm-hmm. end, um, these two emerged. And I think everyone, the conventional wisdom was that Jim Debacus, because of his high profile as a former state senator, would um, be one of the top two. And that didn't happen. And uh, to be honest, I'm not surprised because he did not seem to campaign or take it didn't seem to take it seriously. His campaign slogans were very jokey. Um, he, I think, rested on his reputation and name ID, and that wasn't enough in this large field of candidates. Um, I think we've got two outstanding candidates uh, to, for voters to to assess yeah. in, the, in the coming days.
0: Yeah, so uh, Jason, it's interesting because this is sort of the battle of approaches a little bit for these two. You have a, a, a state senator in, in Luz Escamilla, and you have uh, someone who's been involved in local government at the council, Aaron Mendenhall, for some time. How do those two different uh, sets of experience, and there are considerable experience on both sides,
1: how does how does that play for these two in this race? So you ask yourself, I mean, each one of them have legislative experience, which is gonna help either one. And uh, even going back to the I mean, the idea is you, you couldn't find three more qualified people if, if those three were gonna be the ones uh, vying for it. Now you have these two, you don't really lose anything one way or the other. The one has more experience in city government, which is what we're talking about. However, on a, a large scale, so much of what this, uh, the city needs is help from legislators in, to, uh, in, in order to help them do things, particularly as we talk about the Inland Port at some point probably uh, today. Then having that those ties, having those connections, that would be pretty advantageous.
2: Are, are those the pitches, Max? Yes, um, I, I think that uh, I, I was looking at the, uh, at the map of, of voting in Salt Lake uh, from this past primary, and, the, this, is a, and this was uh, a regional vote. The, the geography of this vote was west side versus east side. Uh, Luz Escamilla won almost all the vote west of I-15, and Aaron Mendenhall really cleaned up east of I-15, and that is an interesting dynamic in this city um, and, uh, and something that I think any mayor needs to pay attention to. Um, and so, so crossing, crossing those lines, who gets the most of the remaining votes? Um, now, Luz, she owned that, that vote on the west side of the city. There are places to gain a lot of votes, on the east side because David Garbett got votes here, Jim has got votes here. Um, and, uh, and so I see Mendenhall having some advantages there, but we need to pay attention to the issues. She is stuck dealing with the inland port as a city council member. That is a controversial topic, and she has had to vote on it uh, against uh, a lot of the a lot of the voters' wishes, and that is going to be a little bit of a weight around her neck.
0: Uh-huh. So, how do they navigate this one? Maybe, Jennifer, take just a second. What's happened over the summer with this inland port?
3: oh gosh well there have been protests mm-hmm. perhaps you've seen every them. meeting right? yeah, every meeting so- and in fact um, the inland port has really not been able to effectively meet for months um protesters come in they are very concerned i think part of it is the vacuum of information there's just nothing we don't know. We don't know what the impact will be. We don't know what the big plan is. There's so many unknowns, and those question marks lead to frustration. So now, uh, just within the last few weeks, we've had a, a new executive director installed. Mm-hmm. This person is going to be the point person, and he needs to very, very quickly gain the trust of the public, because if he doesn't, this thing is still gonna fall apart. Yeah, I mean, trans- oh, I'm sorry,
1: Transparency has to be Absolutely. paramount in this case because yeah. so much of what the frustration is from these protesters is that they don't know what's going on and this will directly affect many of them. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're a property owner or a resident who lives in those areas that are gonna be impacted, you wanna know what's happening in your community. And for the people who are supposed to be serving you, not to be giving you that information, Any of us would be upset about that. And it's also, there's also a geography to this, which is, and this is
2: as problematic or more so than when you look at the mayor's race and the bifurcation of the city, is that the people who are living closest to the inland port are the people who want it least. And so this is being put in by, uh, uh, by a big majority of state leaders, but the vast majority of those leaders who support the inland port live far away from it. And the people who, and Salt Lake City, Mm -hmm. and the people who represent Salt Lake City, by and large are opposed to it. Um, And that is, that's, that's a troubling thing. And I think it feels, that just feels wrong to a lot of people because it's, hey, wait a minute, you're putting this in our city, even though we don't want it and you want it. And you're putting it in our backyard. I
3: I would say that both candidates, they're both aligned. They're in support of the city's lawsuit. I think they're both in support of keeping a city voice at the table. We'll see the differentiation though, because now we're after Labor Day, we're down to two candidates. And I think that they are going to try and stake out some ground um, and, and, you know, Make a distinction between them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's start talking about uh, kind of the tangents of this particular issue on a, on the federal side. Um, this is people talking about uh, the federal government and others getting involved in their own hometown. But I want to talk about uh, what's happened this week uh, on the border wall. Because we've talked about this in the state uh, a bit, but some really uh, real implications has happened this week for us. Uh, the President of the United States allocating $3.6 billion diverting from military construction projects. You just talk about that and what that might be, but also directly here at home, right, Max? So mm-hmm. this is money straight out of Hill Air Force Base, yeah. uh, $54 million allocated for us, mm-hmm. uh, for our base, yeah. Gone to the wall. And it, uh, Approved by
2: Congress. Congress is supposed to have the power of the purse strings uh, constitutionally. So they're the ones who the decide.
1: 3.6 million have been approved by Congress.
2: Where yes, right, right. where the where the money goes. But they also approved these. These are appropriated right. by Congress. That's these right. uh, these specific projects. And so taking this away, you think about Hill Air Force Base. You're not just talking about a building at Hill Air Force Base. You're talking about construction jobs uh, in the area of Northern Utah. Um, you're talking about uh, the the prime uh, motive the, the The prime reason that Hill Air Force Base is such a valuable military installation is because of the test and training range. There's this vast open space where they can do things that they can't do anywhere else in the country. and, w- and one of those buildings is a mission control center for the test and training range, um, so that's an economic driver for Utah, and uh, and so uh, yeah, our, both of our senators are, are uh, have been upset about um, about reappropriating or moving those funds that were already appropriated.
0: So let's talk about how upset they are, and I want to show a graphic, uh, Jennifer. Maybe you can be prepared to talk about this for just a minute because the, uh, the anger is actually being uh, brought about in a, a bill that is is being brought by Mitt Romney and Mike Lee to together, and uh, Mike Lee said this uh, as a deeper issue on this. He says, Congress has been ceding far too much power to the executive branch for decades, and it is far past time for Congress to restore the proper balance of power between the three branches. So it's interesting, uh, what Max was just describing right there, our own senators think is a separation of powers problem.
3: I don't think that they're wrong. I mean, I do think that there does need to be some checks and balances. It's interesting that this is the particular issue that these two senators can get behind. It's about it's about money and it's about military funding. So again, it's sort of a reflection of their values. I'm not too surprised in the pushback. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if they can make that argument on other issues.
0: Yeah, curious, because uh, Jason, this bill that they're talking about uh, says that the president can do an emergency declaration, but after 30 days, Congress has to approve it to string. keep
1: it. Does that, does that keep them in check? That would at least uh, help keep them in check, uh, yeah. keep the president uh, in check. And the idea is that I'm sure they feel at this point that they've uh, he is uh, usurped Congress's authority to be able to have, as Max described, the, the purse strings. And when you, this, isn't a, this is a, a representative republic, and part of that means that the president may be the leader of the country, but he is not solely the leader of the country, and he should not be making decisions that are gonna affect communities around this country, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, our national security, in a way that could potentially compromise it and, and at least for Mitt Romney and for Mike Lee they believe this is one of those op- uh, one of those times when that could be happening
2: and we have to have proper context here too because this particular emergency declaration was made about an emergency that congress was fully aware of and voted on so, so this is an emergency declaration that was made because Congress disagreed. So Congress made a decision. Nothing changed. There was no new crisis point, and an emergency was declared after that, even though Congress had already weighed in. And the idea of emergency declarations, at least in theory, is that the president might need to do something at the drop of a hat because there's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's not what happened here. It's uh, uh, it's uh, it's a troubling use of power, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the powers of the president for a moment, and this is going to be an issue we're going to have to talk about on the show uh, through the summer, though. Uh, one of the things that people are saying is an emergency now is the issue of, of gun control. And uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, Jennifer, just just this week said, we're interested in bringing someone, something forward, but we will only bring something if the president would support it. All right? So, uh, any idea about some of those bills? The background checks in particular is what they're talking about. Does that kind of satisfy the problem and will the republicans go along from what you're the people you're talking to
3: well you know background checks are popular i mean i think that everybody knows that um in surveys around the country there's a lot of popular support for those background checks the pressure is on for congress to do something how many mass shootings have we had in the last month i think it's been more than 50 deaths um in august um i think people are fed up Um, We see some movement on the private sector side uh, where Walmart is saying, well, I'm not going to (laughs) sell certain kinds of guns. I don't we we do not want people open carrying in our stores. I mean, I think you're going to see more of people um, and groups and institutions making those moves, but they really can't move the needle um, unless Congress feels that pressure. And so, you know, I, I do think that they will kind of dance around on certain types of guns. I think they'll look at um, the the background checks. Um, I think Senator McConnell is just out of touch on this okay. one. Well,
0: this is one we're going to watch very closely over the summer. Thank you for your insights on this and all the issues today. Very informative. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of the Heatley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.